This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, this is Elise. I'm currently sitting in my car after getting five cavities filled because my dental insurance expires next week. Big thanks to Dr. Schneider and Olivia for helping me out. This podcast is recorded at 12.20 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 1st of 2024. Things may have changed by the time you hear it, and hopefully by then I'll be capable of more typical speech. Here's the show. Okay, I'm really proud that she's taking care of those cavities, but I'm also, like, deeply alarmed that we have to do these things based on when we have, like, dental insurance or health insurance. Racing to it. I, or when, you, I don't know, it's the same thing as, like, if you ever hit your deductible and then you're like, I gotta, <laughs> no. I gotta get everything done before that deductible comes back up. Hey, shout out to Dr. Shiner and Olivia for fitting Elise in. <laughs> well, hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Frank Ordonez. I cover the presidential campaign. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. And we begin today's show with a strange yet symbolic split screen at the southern border. Both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump visited Texas yesterday. Join me, or I'll join you, in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? And about 300 miles away along the same Rio Grande River, Donald Trump had a very different message and a very different tone. The operation that they showed me is nothing less than incredible. And I'll say this, uh, it's a military operation. I mean, we have a military, this is like a war. All right. So, Franco, how do you make sense of the fact that these two men stood at the same border and offered rather contrasting visions. Yeah, it was very different messages. I mean, Trump really painted a very apocalyptic image of the border, you know, of the dangers involved, of what was happening. He described the situation as kind of needing a military operation. Uh, He had a National Guard behind him. The, The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, toured some of the border there in Eagle Pass, which is where he was, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the the front lines of an immigration or a border battle between state and federal authorities. Meanwhile, Biden, you know, as you heard in that piece of tape, you know, he called for bipartisanship. And, you know, I, I would argue that ship has kind of sailed on this issue. But what he is trying to do is kind of at least leave a message that he's willing and trying to at least offer a potential solution. You know, he was referring, of course, to the bipartisan deal that senators put together that would have tightened rules for asylum. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I mean, I think a bigger goal that he has is trying to flip the script on Republicans, you know, not only presenting a real solution or a solution, but also trying to paint Republicans as being unserious about actually fixing the problem and just playing politics. I do think it's an interesting strategy, and I'm curious to see if Biden does more of it. The border is one of those issues that's just presented the opportunity most clearly. But even in that clip you hear him, he he's sort of running against Congress. Like, he's not saying, like, my opponent will do X, Y, or Z, but he's saying, join me in telling Congress, tell Republicans in Congress, and campaigning against congressional inaction. 
I don't know if it'll work, but mm-hmm. it is. it seems like a new and interesting tactic in that it's actually given the president a response to a question that, frankly, I don't think the Biden administration was very good at answering in the first couple of years of the administration on what exactly their strategy was for the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, it does seem like these visits for both men were largely uh, campaign trips, right? I mean, they offered a lot of pomp, a lot of opportunities for pictures, a lot of theater, but not necessarily a whole lot of policy. Not at all. I mean, it really was like they were kind of, you know, when you watched it actually on TV, I mean, it really could have been they could have been like in a boxing ring uh, with the two sides kind of squaring off. And, you know, to Sue's point, I mean, I absolutely think that she's right, that Democrats do see this as an opportunity to kind of change the narrative. I mean, Biden is really going on the offensive. It took almost two years into his presidency until Biden went to the border. And here he is going, you know, very quickly after Trump announces his visit. Now, Biden says that's just a coincidence. But this is a real new aggressive approach that Biden is taking. And the Democrats that I talk to, you know, are kind of almost excited about this and say that, you know, the Republicans and Trump, by torpedoing that deal, have given them, you know, a message, an example that they can actually point to on the campaign trail to explain that they are more serious about actually addressing the border. And I actually spoke with Evan Roth Smith. He's a Democratic pollster. And he pointed to the special election in New York earlier this month with Democrat Tom Suozzi, who went on the offensive over the border after this whole episode. We now have proof positive in this latest election that Republicans are out over their skis again on immigration. They don't know what to do. And they've handed Democrats something they can run on for months or maybe years. This does seem like a very complicated message, though, to sell to voters, because what voters are seeing is a situation at the border that they think is not under control. You look at poll after poll, right, and you see that immigration is rising in terms of just a, a an issue of concern for voters. You look at the fact that I think um, a Monmouth poll recently found that a majority of voters say that they want to construct a border wall. And I believe that's the first time ever since that question has been posed directly to voters in that survey that they're seeing this. And it does strike me that you have to convince voters, if you're a Democrat, that Republicans don't want to do something even though they could do something. That feels like a really complicated message to sell. I don't think there's any doubt that the Republican Party has a structural advantage on the broader issue of border security. I just think if you ask a voter to say, hey, which party do you think wants to crack down on the border more? Republicans and polling validates this. They have more trust to the public. But I think Franco's right. I think that that special election in New York, coupled with the president and Democrats in Congress actually coming up with a policy solution that was ultimately rejected by Republicans because Donald Trump didn't support it, has given them what they haven't had for a really long time, which is answers to these questions. And I think that Swazi's win in a district that is also where immigration is a top issue. This is an issue where the migrant crisis, people are feeling it. It's in constant local news coverage there. It's not like a, it was an issue that resonated with voters there. That if you talk about it and are aggressive about it and say what you're for, that 
you can win. But it remains to be seen if that can be replicated across other competitive districts. I don't know. As I've said many times, I'm always skeptical about what special elections Mm -hmm. ultimately tell us about the general election. But I do think it has changed a calculation in that Democrats were feeling very scared on the issue of immigration and the border. And I think that there is more confidence that they can actually at least have a response at debates and and in ads to the what what are you going to do about immigration? I mean, the big question also I have, though, is can it be replicated at the very top of the ticket if you have Joe Biden face off against Donald Trump, a man who the very first time he ran in 2016 made the argument that he was running on immigration, right? He talked about Mexicans, folks coming across the border, not sending their best kind. I mean, that was his rhetoric from day one. And Biden, I think, is now trying to own this situation more directly, showing that he is in control and that he has potential solutions. But again, if you look at his approval rating on immigration, it's rather, rather low. So it is a particular vulnerability for him. It's interesting that you put it that way, Asma, because, you know, Biden ran on a very different message when he launched his campaign undoing many of the policies, the most extreme policies that Trump had implemented. And now he's kind of embracing some of Trump's language, talking about shutting the border down and even advocating for this agreement that is really, really strong on border enforcement. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we will talk more about the current congressional logjam. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast, With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. And we're back. And let's turn now to Capitol Hill, which finds itself in its new state of normal, uh, which I would say is mild paralysis until the absolute last minute. The House and Senate have each passed a short-term spending bill to keep the government open. My understanding is um, some agencies will, in fact, only stay open until next Friday. So not a long-range deal. This comes after the government was set to shut down today had there not been any intervention. Sue, you have covered Congress for many years. When you're looking at what's going on right now, I mean, do you see any room for optimism? I do. Let's let's All end right. this week on an Tell optimistic me. note. I feel like I never get to bring the optimism to the pod, so I'll do my best today. Um, 
one, it is, let's not uh, give them too much applause on Capitol Hill when you consider that these are all spending bills that should have all been signed into law by September 30th. They're already months and months past the deadline and they're still not there yet. So no extra credit. But, uh, you know, part of this deal that they passed another stopgap to get through uh, next week, as you noted, Asma, but as part of that deal, the leaders have announced that they have the, the terms of an agreement to approve six of the 12 outstanding spending bills. So a deal is upon them. Uh, now, in normal times, I would say this looks like it's on a glide path and a done deal. In this Congress with this House of Representatives, you always have to sort of wait until the moment that it's actually coming up for a vote to have any level of confidence. But it does seem on a glide path to have half of the spending bills signed into law by the end of the week. And then they say that they'll try to work out the remaining six appropriations bills by March 22nd. The cause for less optimism in those six bills is Congress is pushing off the more controversial ones. These are spending bills for things like the Justice Department, which not a lot of rank and file Republicans want to vote to fund the Justice Department right now. Or the bills that fund the Labor Department and the Health and Human Services Department are tricky because they have some abortion policies in there. So there's the, the more complicated bills uh, still TBD, but it moved towards progress this week versus the other direction, which I guess the other direction <laughs> is Congress, but on bumps. <laughs> well, I appreciate your um, bit of optimism today for us on this Friday. Though I do have this question about this other big uh, supplemental bill that's supposed to provide further aid for Ukraine, additional aid for Israel. Um, that is something that President Biden has been trying to get Congress to pass. Uh, we saw that the House Speaker has thus far not brought it up for a vote. Um, do you have any sense that something might have changed this week to make it more likely to have any traction? I think there's more optimism around Ukraine aid as well. Um, huh. Okay, couple, explain that, Sue. <laughs> a couple of things have happened both uh, in and outside the control of Congress in Washington. One being the death of Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, was a very uh, resonant and motivating issue on Capitol Hill. And I think that changed or clarified what's at stake here politically uh, if Russia is on the advance in Ukraine. And I think that the resolve of members who really want to see this past has only dug them in deeper. I also think when that happened, when the death of Navalny was announced, a significant contingent of leaders in Congress were at the Munich Security Conference. And almost to the one, people that spoke publicly about it said that they were uh, pressured by leaders from around the world saying, like, where is this money? The money's got to come. And that they gave assurances to allies that it was coming, that it was going to be difficult, but it would get there. Um, and frankly, just the math, it's already passed the Senate. It, it split Republicans in half, but half the Senate Republican conference voted for it. Probably not that dissimilar in the House where there is a lot of opposition to it, but I don't think there's any doubt that the votes are there. Um, they have the numbers. It's just tricky internal politics. A lot of House Republicans don't want to vote for this money. They have what is a new and relatively weak speaker who is trying to navigate the politics of his uh, internal conference. But I also have to say, guys, like it was notable to me, too, that there was a White House meeting with all the principal leaders on mm -hmm. the Hill and national security leaders and the president. And a lot of that meeting, to me, seemed designed to kind of keep the pressure campaign on the speaker to be like, look, we know you got your internal political problems, but there's a bigger thing at stake here for the world. And like, it's time to put on your your leader pants and, and, and allow the hard votes to happen. You know, and I'll just add to that. I mean, those meetings at the White House, they don't generally happen um, unless there is some kind of opening that they can see for some potential progress. But 
at the same time, I'm not ready to pop any champagne. Uh, I mean, I still see a rocky path. And I, you know, I think I'm with the, you know, a little bit of the pessimism because, you know, I just look at, and Sue, you're the expert here, but, you know, I see the far right, you know, members of that uh, house pushing against him and even threatening to depose him if he allows this to happen. Um, and, and even Trump has, you know, you know, Trump's put his thumb on the scale here. He has not supported this. Um, so uh, I think I'll I'll wait to see. You know, I'll believe it when I do see it. So it sounds like you don't share the optimism that Sue has about where this might go in this moment. You know, I am uh, sort of intrigued by something that the national security spokesman John Kirby told our colleague Tamara Keith this week. She asked about the timeline for needing this Ukraine aid to pass. And I believe he said that the timeline's already passed, that it's already too late. And, you know, they've been saying iterations of that publicly. The way he phrased that, though, made it sound like he does not think that Ukraine can afford a further delay. And so I hear what you're saying about the optimism, Sue, but there's the reality that with every additional day, um, Russia can make further inroads into Ukraine. And this is potentially going to be a moot conversation in months if Ukraine does not have that money soon. I think that one of the technical but important points here is that there is a path for this to pass the House without the consent of the Speaker. There are procedural tactics Democrats could use, something known as the discharge petition, in which, you know, right now, there's not a lot. There, I don't think there's any House Republicans on record saying they would support a discharge petition. But if the Speaker were to say, look, I'll just never bring this to the floor, I think you could see a critical mass of Republicans break and side with Democrats to force a vote. So like I said, there's paths. It just mm-hmm. depends on how ugly and how painful the paths to get there are going to be. But I think right now, compared to three or four weeks ago, I think it is more likely than not that there will be at least be a House vote on Ukraine aid at some point in the coming weeks. Yeah, definitely progress is being made. It's just very slow and it's still perilous. All right, let's take one more break. And when we get back, it's time for your favorite part of the show. Can't let it go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens, trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in the landscape or garden. All it takes is a bit of TLC to transform a dull yard into one that's full of color, texture, and life. Available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Or discover the possibilities at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. And we're back, and it's time for Can't Let It Go. That's the part of the show where we talk about the things that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. And Sue, why don't you kick it off? 
The thing I can't let go this week relates to politics and what I find a new and curious trend happening among members of Congress, and that is the unretirement. Okay. Members that have said that they are going to retire and not going to run again and then ultimately change their mind and announce. And as you both know, once something happens three times in politics, <laughs> it's officially a trend. <laughs> so the third congressman, Mark Green, he's the Homeland Security chairman. He had already announced that he planned to retire. And in his retirement announcement, he referred to a strong desire to leave Congress. Hmm. Um, but he announced this week at the urging of many people, including President Trump, he's decided to unretire and will, in fact, seek reelection. Um, two other members that have done this, uh, Pat Fallon, who is a Texas Republican, was going to retire and run for a local office. He changed his mind. He's going to run for reelection. And Victoria Sparts, she's a Republican from Indiana, had very publicly said that she wanted to leave politics and then changed her mind and said, now she's going to run again. So what do you make of this? You know, it's a weird Congress. So maybe it's just a reflection of how weird the moment is. But it's really weird. It's just generally not something politicians do. Usually a lot of thought and reflection goes into retirement <laughs> announcements. So to just like constantly be walking them back is it is just weird. I do wonder if Republicans now feel a little more, let's say, optimistic about what their odds might be heading into November, because all the folks you mentioned are Republican. And look, when you have somebody like Trump calling these lawmakers and saying, hey, please change your mind and, and run again, that's going to have a pretty compelling effect. But I'm curious to see if it keeps happening because it's also kind of a strange message to your constituents, right? You like quit and then you come back. I don't know. I feel like it's something that like sports people have done before, like they retire from sports and then come back. And yeah. now maybe it's just something lawmakers do too. I mean, just three out of how many? I mean, I just remember all these, you know, the revolving door of people announcing that they were leaving. I'm very curious if it will, you know, if we'll get more than three, too. Asma, what about you? What can't you let go of? So I don't know if you all heard the news that Wendy's was going to try out this thing called surge pricing. Yeah. Did you guys hear about this? <laughs> I heard about it, but explain it because I don't exactly, I'm not exactly sure it's going to work. Okay, my understanding is it's going to be a bit like Uber or that it was going to be because apparently they got so much backlash to this that they decided to uh, shift course a bit. But I felt very um, impassioned about this because I like to know what it is I am paying. Like, I'm one of those people where I don't want to be tricked or duped and, like, you show up at the drive through counter and you're like, what? My fries are $5? I thought they were only $2. <laughs> and it's like, I don't mind paying more if I know that I'm going to pay more. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that does make sense. Like, you want to know what it is. It's like, you don't want to show up and find out what the cost of a burger is. My, my understanding was that, like, surge pricing, you know, when, like, it's raining and Uber suddenly is, like, two times X or yes. three times. And that always is frustrating to me. And I totally get why they do it. It's, like, supply and demand. But um, anyhow, just want to say thank you to Wendy's for saying that it will not use surge pricing. To me, it would make sense if it would like, I don't know, there's this thing about surge pricing where it's like happy hours or places that use, you know, like lower costs to get people in the door at different hours, like that would work. But if it's like, oh, at dinner time, we're just going to hike up the price of French fries, that seems like something that would make a lot of people really mad. You know, to that point, I actually do think that they said that it was being somewhat misconstrued and that their intent was not to raise prices when demand was higher, but that they did want to kind of offer discounts at special times. I think that that is what they said that it was going to be and that they never used the phrase surge pricing. It seems that some of that messaging got taken out of their hands, you know, well, they were also, messaging 101. <laughs> I think like Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat from uh, Massachusetts and other senators were like using this to like condemn <laughs> corporate America practices. So it was not 
not the rollout Wendy's was yeah. hoping for. So what about you, Franco? Well, I'm going to stay on the food theme. Um, and what my can't let it go is the demise of hot dog night at Philly's baseball games. Is it because they were throwing the hot dogs? Exactly. Is it really? Because I was kidding. I'm not, you know, I'm not a Philly fan, but this is just so fascinating, (laughs) you know, and I do know a lot of these fans and, you know, this is a big deal. I mean, for decades, they had this deal where you could buy $1 hot dogs uh, at the stadium. Uh, But as you know, Sue, uh, they had this big food fight last year where people are throwing the hot dogs at each other. They ended up on the field. You had like discarded buns um, on the concourse. The team responded and said, you know, they want to have a good night for all fans and that this unruliness, uh, they decided to end it. And it's just hilarious to me. I like that they think that taking away the hot dogs will end the unruliness of Philadelphia (laughs) sports fans. I just can see like every time, you know, some father or mother takes their kid to a baseball game going forward and they, you know, order a hot dog. They're going to talk about, you know, remember that time uh, that they had one dollar hot dogs and now they're doing surge pricing. <laughs> All right, well, that is a wrap for today's show. Our executive producer is Mathoni Maturi. Our editor is Erica Morrison. Our producers are Jung Yoon Han, Casey Morell, and Kelly Wessinger. Thanks to Krishna Dev Kalamar and Dana Farrington. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the presidential campaign. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. And thank you all, as always, for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 